Hey, thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Business Fun Podcast. I am your host, Dave Wakeman. My guest today is author M.K. Lever. Uh, M.K. is her pen name. And we talk about her book, Surviving the Second Tier, which is a dystopian novel about being a college athlete. Uh, I make several jokes that it is not a horror story and not a dystopian novel because it hits too close to home. And that was the point of the book. And we had a really great conversation about all kinds of stuff. This was this one was really a lot of fun. I actually just finished recording it about an hour ago. I wanted to get it out so quickly because I enjoyed it. And I thought also her book came out yesterday. So I wanted to give her a little promotional push as the saying goes. Uh, how's everybody doing? Always, uh, even as we're continuing to open up and continuing to have uh, fun and excitement come down, uh, You know, if you need somebody to talk to, let me know. It's daviddavewakeman.com. I appear to be hitting the road in March, uh, heading off to some of my favorite locales like London and Paris, uh, maybe even Birmingham, England. I don't know. We'll see about this. Uh, but I'm, I'm looking to get over to uh, Europe for a week at mid-March, uh, still finalizing all the details of my travel, but I will let you know. Uh, make sure that you check out my friends. Uh, did you see Simon, Mab, and Dave Wakeman in Sportico? about a week or so ago, talking about refund protection, about uh, what it means for people, all kinds of stuff. If you haven't already, I'll send you a link. Well, you know I will. All right, so check that out. Um, let's get that link going. Um, it's really good. But check out Book and Protect. As I've talked about before here and talk about in the article for Sportico, uh, the refund protection product has been ta- being taken up at a level that's probably twice what it was before the pandemic. Uh, They will be in Birmingham. Simon's giving a talk on security after the terrorism attack in Manchester. Uh, Haley, Kat, Kath, uh, the whole team, I think, will be there. It's going to be great. So check them out, bookingprotect.com. Make sure you get my newsletter. It is Talking Tickets, talkingtickets.substack.com. It's really like four stories and some links and blurps now. Whatever it is, um, it gets open more than anything I do. It gets more engagement than anything I do. Um, I wrote this thing about NFTs the other day that people went nuts over. Uh, get it, talkingtickets.substack.com. And inside the Talking Tickets, or just in general, I am doing a survey uh, because I'm trying to put together to see if it makes sense to do a podference. So a podcast-based conference about the road to recovery to help everybody recover from the pandemic. Uh, I'm trying to figure out if that is a valid idea or if I should try something else. Um, So let me know. There is a survey. I'm going to put it in the show notes. Um, I'll I'll attach it to everything. Uh, It asks you how to make the podcast better, how to make the newsletter better, and whether or not and what you would like to learn from the podference. It helped me out. It'd take you about two minutes. And that would be super awesome. So back to MK. MK Lever is studying to get her doctorate at the University of Texas, Austin. She is a former uh, Division I college athlete, and she wrote this book called Surviving the Second Tier uh, because she felt like some of the statistics and some of the examples of the life of a college athlete were not making it through, that people were ignoring the realities. And so she thought that the best way to convey her point was through a novel. Uh, I tend to agree. There's some pretty incredible numbers that I share with people, and they just kind of feel like they fall on deaf ears. Um, so sometimes having a story or a uh, to attach to the numbers or using a different mode of communication 
seems to be super helpful. I mean, that's one of the reasons I started the podcast is because it seemed to be much more effective at conveying my thoughts and getting my point across through a conversation. So we talk about the novel, but that's really just a doorway into um, her academic research, the commodification of college athletics, uh, exploitation of athletes, uh, we talk about the name, image, and likeness rights issue, and there was only, this is my joke because it seems like only white dudes get to talk about it, I was the only white dude present in the conversation. Uh, we talk about uh, how kids were treated during the pandemic. Uh, I, I mentioned how uncomfortable I felt with the uh, 60 Minutes profile of Ed Ogeron because I would have a hard time sending my kid to the college uh, because that guy seemed like pretty much, I don't want to say he seemed like a numpty, uh, and it's, but how that's a complicated problem, and it's just a sign of like some of the deeper systemic issues we're dealing with. Uh, we talked about you know the weird balance in the NIL legislation. We talked about what's driving the passive, the passive nature of the response from the NCAA. We got into monopoly, or we got into antitrust law. We didn't touch on monopoly power. Dang, I missed an opportunity there. We talked about innovation. Uh, we talked about what she hopes people take away from the book. Um, we talked. We even made um, Brett Kavanaugh in the Supreme Court even made its way into the conversation in a in a completely amusing way. Uh, it was pretty good. And so, I mean, this was a really great conversation. I feel like we probably have way more stuff that we could uncover here. Um, but I enjoyed this. I think that MK's book is really um, an interesting way to try to tell people and teach people about the lives of college athletes. Um, and I f- really support her and this book and i'm really glad that we had a chance to talk so here's my conversation with mk lever on the business of fun oh here we go so i'm happy to welcome mk lever like the soap that's what mk told me to say um to the business of fun podcast mk how are you i'm good how are you doing I'm great. Uh, now that we, we had some technical difficulties that were all on me, now we're here. Uh, I told you that um, the book that you that we're going to talk about, Surviving the Second Tier, uh, could it be a horror story or a uh, dystopian novel? And I go, no, I think it's too close to reality for both of them. Uh, so I'm very excited because I think we're going to pro- uh, – we might laugh, but it'll be like laughter that keep us from crying. Um, but um, thank you so much for coming on. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to hear about the book and talk to you. Yeah, thank you for having me, Dave. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So let's start with the book. It's called Surviving the Second Tier. You get it at all your your fancy bookstores and uh, order it online. You know all, all all these things. It's a cool story because you have a background in college athletics, um, and you played you played at at Texas uh, at UT Austin. Is that right? Or so I'm actually I'm getting my PhD at UT Austin. I can ah. Kentucky University. Okay, because I had it backwards. See, you can't trust me with anything. And so you write from, but you write from experience. And so can you tell us a little bit about the book? So my book is a novel about the issues in the college sports industry, and it's set as a as, as a futuristic dystopia. Um, and the reason that I wrote a fictional take on this is because um, as someone who does academic research, I've learned over the years that sometimes these facts and statistics just don't stick with people for some reason. I think we've also learned that in the pandemic, unfortunately. Um, And so I decided that 
it might be a better option to tell people a story and see how it landed with people and see if it resonated with people. Um, and so far it has, and that, that makes me really happy because I think a lot of the times when we see athletes and not just college athletes, but professional and Olympic athletes as well, we tend to view them as, as statistics or as, you know, Oh, how much is, is this athlete making per year or what can this athlete do for my fantasy league? And we don't really tend to see their human side. Um, and so I wanted to write about the current issues in the college sports industry from a very direct perspective so that readers could get emotionally invested into the lives of college athletes. I think that that idea that stats don't stick with people, it seems to be very true. Um, I'm known for using a lot of data, not necessarily in the conversations like this, but in my in my work. And I'm I'm always struck that I have to weave a narrative around the number to get the number across. Right. Even though the number alone is often like, holy buckets, I need to do this. And so and, and I'm curious because you said that, like, a lot of times when we think about athletes, college or professional, um, we tend to think of them as statistics or um, you know, ways to help our fantasy team. I, I haven't played fantasy sports in a long, long time. Uh, and I think part of it is because of this thing, but it de dehumanizes the, the, you know, the entire operation. And I don't know if you have an opinion, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you do. And if, if you don't, you just tell me I'm an idiot and like, tell me to move on with my day and I'll be totally fine because you wouldn't be the first one. Um, but do you think that kind of the rise of all of this sort of um, it's almost financialization of of sports and athletics has led to the dehumanization and it encourages a lot of this bad behavior. Yeah, I would say it definitely contributes to it. Um, and, and I'm, I'm a person who doesn't think that there's anything inherently wrong with earning money from collegiate athletics. I don't think that that is a morally bad thing to do. But what I do think is wrong is to exploit the athletes, whether it's physical exploitation or financial exploitation, um, you know, by keeping the revenue away from them, physical exploitation by pushing them well beyond their limits for the sake of winning and feeding into that commercialization and the prestige of programs. Um, and so I don't think that there's anything um, morally wrong about the commercialization of college athletics, but what I do think is wrong is the ways that it, it negatively impacts athletes. Right, but we don't have the money for for anything, MK. We don't have the, you know, how could we treat the athletes better? We don't have the money. I mean, there's not billions of dollars that come into the sports every year. We can't possibly treat them well. Yeah, we're, like how, we're, how do you fight back about that? <laughs> well, my my first uh, rebuttal to that argument is how much is your football coach being paid? You know, could he take a salary cut? Um, you know, because I look at the the kinds of money or the, the kind of money that's being spent on facilities um, just for useless renovations or upgrades that aren't necessary, but that are used for recruiting um, young athletes who are minors, by the way. So that's a whole other ethical dilemma is using those tactics to draw minors to a school. Um, and then I look at administrative salaries and coach salaries. And then, you know, I, I, I always 
I always talk back and say, you know, are there cuts that could be made in other areas to better benefit the athletes? And I, I believe with a little creative thinking that the answer is more often than not, yes. I would push back just oh, ever so slightly on this thing where you say that, that without a little with a, a little bit of effort, you could find cuts or reasonable accommodations that we've made for kids. And I told you about my experience at the University of Alabama being surrounded by, like, you know, going to class with kids and living in the dorms with walk ons and stuff. I would say it wouldn't take much effort at all to find reasonable cuts or reasonable ways to cr- uh, improve the quality of life. Uh, and I realize that as soon as I say something like this, somebody's going to email me or text me or tweet at me or whatever and go, well, the kids at the University of Alabama are okay. They might be okay, but there's thousands of kids that are not playing football at the University of Alabama that really are getting treated poorly. Um, And it's because, like you said, there's needless and unnecessary improvements. Um, The the coaching salaries are are, – ridiculous right because i think that when you and here to me here's a good example to illustrate it and it's probably explains at least to my mind how absurd the whole operation is is that um nick saban is probably without a doubt the best coach in college football but yet at this point he's not the highest paid and like the there's like this competition like to uh looking at lsu to see who can lose to Nick Saban the most and, and, and get paid more. Yeah. And the waterfalls <laughs> in the locker rooms and stuff. I mean, it, it really is absurd. And um, so this goes to a question, which is like, I don't necessarily know if really like the, I mean, I agree with you. There's nothing wrong with making money off of the thing, but I don't know that the NIL is going to necessarily and this change is going to solve a lot of the problems it's definitely giving kids a chance to make money but you know it's not like a um a magic wand i don't think or am am i off in my thinking no you you are absolutely spot on with that i was actually just talking about this um last night at my book launch because name image and likeness has been such a huge topic of conversation lately um it's also a basic human right to be able to monetize what is rightfully yours mm-hmm. and that's something that the ncaa has strategically stripped from college athletes ever since the 1950s they have been very very intentional on making sure that college athletes are so-called amateurs and that they cannot monetize their nils and the only reason that they lifted their restrictions is because they were forced to by state pressure so the ncaa for all of its pr um, about being pro athlete and pro nil and wanting to modernize it it it, it is entirely inaccurate. The NCAA has been nothing but um, resistance, uh, resistant to name, image, and likeness. And, you know, in light of all of that, name, image, and likeness has been a wonderful benefit for college athletes. You know, I, anybody, any college student should be able to become an influencer or should be able to take on a side job related to their skills. Like that, it's a basic human right. Um, however, what it does for well, college it, athletes- Let me step in here because before NIL, it would get to so absurd to the point that like, it wasn't just like within their specialty, a kid couldn't get a job Period. Like the, you know, the, again, my experience is like guys wouldn't be able to take their girlfriends out for like a date on the weekend, right? They like wouldn't be able to go out. You know, they wouldn't have it scrape money together um, and hope they found enough underneath the mattress to buy a, a a cheap six pack of beer to go to like a frat party. 
Yeah, I mean, food insecurity is a huge problem for college athletes. Um, it, it, and I mean, it's always been a big problem. The NCAA has amended its, it used to have limitations on meals and snacks. It lifted the restriction, um, but it did not um, require universities to provide food for uh, for athletes who are struggling with food insecurity. And so, you know, we're talking about basic needs that college athletes aren't getting. Um, and name and likeness, it can help in those areas, but it's not going to solve the root problem of exploitation. And it actually creates more work for these athletes, you know, because they have to put effort into their social media. They have to potentially book clients or, um, you know, block off time to sign autographs. And again, they should be allowed to do that. That's not a bad thing. Um, but it's completely different than, you know, treating a college athlete like an employee and providing, um, you know, meaningful income, providing long term health care and benefits that could actually help them and, and solving the exploitation, which is the root problem in the college sports industry. Well, uh, I mean, we didn't we didn't. Mention, no, no, that was like totally great, because when you talk about exploitation and you talk about how um, dehumanization and you talk about how like so many of these structural issues go back to like even the 50s, it, it reminds me a lot of America. Right. It's just like, um, you know, and like these are not um, these are societal issues and they're not necessarily just reflective of college sports. Uh, but the one area you did bring up that I, I'm always fascinated about because um, it's a story that it's not it doesn't matter for what we're about to talk about. But it it is it makes healthcare. um you, you know, extremely personal. Uh, actually, healthcare is just exp- extremely personal to everybody. Uh, and anybody who tries to tell me that they love their insurance company is a liar. Even people who have um, the Cadillac version of the insurance, like, you know, like someone like me, um, I hate them. They're like, they're useless. The insurance companies are absolutely horrible to deal with. They're they're worthless. Uh, and this opens the door to two things, which is like, the treatment of the athletes during the pandemic and then, you know, the, the long-term implications of how poorly, and I guess I'm, I'm editorializing here, uh, the, how poorly the athletes were treated. Because again, it goes back to the, one of your original statements about dehumanization of the athletes during the thing. Uh, you know, how or what can be done to fix? I mean, I know what can be done and just like stop acting like knuckleheads. Uh, but, you know, what can either fans of college athletics or the athletes themselves do to help get the gain a little more equitable care because there's going to be long-term health implications that we don't have any idea about right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you talking about equitable care for college athletes? What? what people- yeah. Because I mean, they were out there putting their, you know, they're, they're putting their lives on the line for, uh, for sports ball as like my friend, friend calls it uh, during a pandemic where, um, if anybody who didn't watch, uh, hasn't seen the 60 minute special with um, Ed Ogeron at LSU, didn't see that thing. If you couldn't come, if you didn't come away from that horrified by like, for any parent that turned their kid over to him to be the steward of their um, child's college experience, then you're like, you have a mental challenge because. It was like he was so dismissive of safety and security and health care for the kids that it was I mean, it was like scary almost. And like it was completely normalized by 60 minutes. It was yeah. I mean, I don't get offended or shocked by much anymore because I'm too jaded for that. I was shocked by how bad it was. So that's, you know, that's the kind of the lens I'm seeing it through. 
because yeah. I know he's one example of probably hundreds. Yeah, there are so many. There are so many Ed Orgerons in in college sports. You know, he's 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 just a symptom of the overall problem, um, and just the the dis the the um, dismissal of the health and safety of college athletes. And as far as what people can do about it, it's a very complicated problem, you know, because the NCAA is a very powerful institution. Um, it's very hard to get to the center of the NCAA. And like, you can't just write up Mark Emmert, the NCAA president and say like, hey, we want this to happen. And then he's gonna be like, okay, yeah, I'll do it. Like that, you know, in a perfect world, yeah, like that would be <laughs> <laughs> but that's not going to happen. Um, so honestly, for fans, there are two things that fans can actually do. Um, is that the first one is that they can um, get political, so they can pay attention to what their state representatives are saying about college athletes, because now we're seeing these issues enter, um, and and sports and politics are always inextricable. But we're seeing very overt intersections of sports and politics in terms of state level laws and even federal laws that are going to impact college athletes. Mm -hmm. um, getting politically involved, paying attention to what state um, representatives are saying about the issues, what they're doing um, in, in terms of signing bills and laws. Um, that's very, very important. And then, you know, talking with your vote that way. Another way that people, uh, sports fans can get involved is that they can talk with their viewership and they can talk with their money. Um, and so if, because, you know, sports fans stop watching the games until college athletes are treated well, um, then it puts the NCAA in a pretty bad position. That's that is going to be complicated because, like I said, the NCAA is a very powerful institution. It's a multi-billion dollar um, business. And so it's a difficult entity to take down that way. But at the university level, what donors can do is they can either um, pool donations or they can say, hey, you know, I'm not going to donate this unless the department does X, Y, Z for the athletes. And so that those are those are some ways that fans can get involved if they if they want to. Um, again, it's it's going to be a long and difficult process because even, you know, universities are pretty powerful. Um, but just getting involved at that level can speak volumes. And a way that athletes can actually get involved um, is through a potential uh, March Madness strike. Um, because the NCAA makes about 80% of their annual revenue through the March Madness tournament. So if the athletes were to organize together and say, hey, NCAA, we are not going to play in, unless these uh, conditions are fulfilled, um, then, I mean, the NCAA, they would have to, they'd, ha they'd essentially have to listen. Um, there have been whispers whispers of March Madness strikes for, for several years now. It almost happened last year, but what was missing from all of that discourse was an ultimatum. Um, and, and it's it's complicated for athletes because they have a lot to lose. You know, they've worked hard to make it to the national championship. Um, if their coaches don't like what they're doing, they could potentially lose. Um, it could affect their draft status in the NBA. And so it's a complicated tapestry when we talk about how fans and um, and athletes can get involved, but there are ways to sort of crack into the system. Yeah, and then I, I won't even um, I won't even pretend to ask the question. Actually, I, I won't. I guess I will pretend to ask the question just so we can laugh. Um, you know, but if you're on in the college athletic side and you really want to create change, and I know it's not universal, but we'll still have a good laugh in a second. Like, what can you do? 
you know, because like, you know, I know not everybody is like completely going to be dismissive of the human rights of of these athletes and, you know, or like looking to restrain their ability to make money for themselves. You know, th- there are people who are like me who grew up in the South. Uh, the only way out was education, um, who went to college. I mean, so I know a lot of them that went to the University of Alabama with me, um, you know, and they understand what's going on here, um, you know, but as like a you know, low, mid level, even, and I mean, I guess athletic directors can do it. They, they have a great, the greatest ability to change. Um, you know, what kind of guidance or suggestions would you give those people to help them? Because, you know, in theory, everybody gets into this thing because they want to, want to help kids have a better life. Uh, they want to help them get the education. They want them to continue their athletic careers. They want they don't, they don't want, they're not starting out from a point of wanting to do harm. I would say the best thing that anyone involved in college sports can do is to talk to college athletes um, because, you know, I'm, I'm working on my dissertation right now about paternalism in college athletics and how college athletes are infantilized and controlled by various different ways. Um, and one of these ways is that they have so many people above them in positions of power who are making decisions that directly impact them without talking to the athletes themselves. And so the best thing that a person in that position can do to help athletes is get their opinions on things before making decisions for athletes, thinking that you know what's best for them. Um, because it is it is kind of patronizing when that happens, when someone who's you know presumably never been a college athlete says, I know what's best for college athletes and acts on whatever knowledge they have there um, without directly consulting the people that their decisions are going to impact. Yeah, I guess that's um, pretty simple. <laughs> yeah, I, I was gonna, I was gonna say, look at us, like we, we actually, I asked a serious question and we didn't laugh, and then we had a serious answer. I mean, we're like totally rocking over here. Um, but I want to touch back on the political thing too for a second because if people are paying attention to the conversation here, what has been interesting to me is that with some of the political action, especially at the state levels, um, it's not necessarily breaking along what we would consider a traditional uh, left-right break either. It's been weird because you've actually seen, uh, well, I, and I'm going to use this term loosely, political conservatives act in a way that has been like really beneficial for athletes in some states and I, and most of those states are where their football programs are very good and they've been like on we don't want to do anything that's going to hurt our football program which i'm fairly sure that that's the reasoning behind it but um i'm going to ask you you know like what does seem to be driving these things and what can we learn because i know a big part of what you're doing with your book tour here is like helping people understand the dialogue and some of the conversations and to me that's an interesting one because you know most of the time it's like you know if you're on the right left bad and if you're on the left right bad and like this seems to be like an issue where those lines blurred and i'm guessing most people don't know how to deal with that i certainly don't (laughs) yeah it's it's a really interesting dynamic um because in some ways name image and likeness and those state laws have been bipartisan there are certain delineations between Republican and Democratic bills. Um, And it's honestly been kind of surprising to me that Republican uh, led bills have been um, uh, by and large uh, more restrictive than Democrat led bills. Um, There are bills in committee right now um, 
at least at the federal level, um, that are certainly more, more restrictive on the Republican side than on the Democrat side. But by and large, name, image, and likeness is fairly bipartisan. And I think the reason for that is because there are financial implications to name, image, and likeness. Um, name, image, and likeness rights for college athletes can stimulate state economies. Um, some of these state laws have um, stipulations that agents have to be licensed in the state. So keeping that revenue and, and those taxes in the state. Um, and so there are definitely benefits um, for the states financially, which is one of the reasons I think that um, other legislation about college athletes um, have either died in committee or never made it out of the introductory stage. Um, there have been college athlete bills of rights that um, you know address things like health and safety, um, athlete abuse and things like that, that don't really make it very far. And unfortunately, I think that really goes back to the commercial aspect of college sports um, and that, you know, athletes are typically viewed in terms of how much revenue that they can produce or, or what they can do for people. Um, and so I think that that is an unfortunate undertone to all the progress that name, image and likeness has made. Um, but I do think that that's one of the reasons that it's very universally accepted, too. So it's an interesting it, it's an interesting tension there. Yeah. Oh, and let me ask you this, and this may be outside of the scope of your knowledge. And if it's so, it's completely cool. Um, but it, it hits me and I pay a little bit more attention to th this aspect of things. Um, and I think it's just because I studied a lot of history over, over the years, which is the um, and we seem to be entering a stage where antitrust enforcement and, and conversation around antitrust has become much more prominent and much more likely to actually see something happen. Do you think that that has had any impact on the reason that some of this stuff is bipartisan or even being taken more seriously? Because um you know, Major League Baseball has the antitrust exception exemption, um, but the NCAA seems like it could be like right in the crosshairs for any kind of antitrust enforcement if they're um, not careful. And this could be like, uh, you know, a I guess an unintentional first act in any battle that they could be dealing with. Yeah, well, a really important um, case that was settled in uh, 2021 was NCAA versus Alston. And that was an antitrust case that challenged the NCAA's ability to cap educationally related benefits. Um, so things like um, non-cash and, and certain cash benefits uh, for college athletes related to academics, scholarships, uh, certain scholarships, um, equipment like laptops and things like that. Um, and the Supreme Court ruled unanimously against the NCAA. So I think that that really opened the floodgates for people to challenge the NCAA in very unique ways that they haven't been challenged before. I think that's another reason the NCAA has been so hands off with name, image and likeness and has instead uh, deferred to the states and deferred to um, universities to write their own policies because they're terrified of another um, you know, antitrust lawsuit. Um, and so I think the NCAA is kind of playing scared right now. Um, and I, I think that they're also certainly still vying for that antitrust exemption. Yeah, I was going to say, as you talked about them taking the loss, and I was like, going, this is what happens when you punch a bully. And the first time they get punched in the nose, they can't, they don't know how to deal um, with it anymore. They can't, they run and hide. Uh, and I guess the, that like all of this you know, conversation like first off to get the the Supreme Court to vote uh, unanimously on anything, you have like <laughs> definitely got a loser of a case on your hands. 
<laughs> um, but they, at the same I mean, time, they were scathing. They, yeah. they were, I mean, like Brett Kavanaugh, you know, he, he was saying that in any other industry, the NCAA's business model would be fat, uh, flatly illegal, that the NCAA is not above the law. So they really came down hard on the NCAA. I mean, if Brett Kavanaugh is saying that, uh, he's no, he's not known for his, um, you know, friendliness to the worker. <laughs> so, so, I mean, it must know, be a bad situation. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Brett Kavanaugh got the laughs. That's uh, it's probably appropriate. But, but uh, now back to the serious thing is like, it seems that, um, you know, a lot of chips are lining up because uh, as we started with the pandemic, we started to see how um, over leveraged, I think uh, if I'm being nice, I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be balanced, even though I, I think that my point of view has come across like probably here more than like most cases, um, uh, over leveraged, uh, heavily burdened with debt, I believe, yet at the same time, bringing in hundreds of millions to billions of dollars a year to the point that like, um, it was not un, uh, it was not necessarily a given that like the Cal Berkeley's um, athletic department was going to have to file bankruptcy because they were over a half a billion dollars in debt. Now, Cal Berkeley ain't the University of Alabama, to be fair either. Like, how in the world are you ever going to retire all of that debt? Right, you're not in the SEC, you're in the Pact. 12 that's kind of like lag behind the rest of the things like what are you investing in a and then like how irresponsible are you and then the bigger question is like how does that point to a just an instability or a business model that is likely either on its last legs or like heading for a collapse or like going to something new I think it is if be all of the above too. It's totally. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're spot on if the industry doesn't innovate. And and you mentioned earlier, you know, asking what are they investing in, and I would ask what are they not investing in? Because I look at women's sports. You know, all major women's sports leagues experience growth during the pandemic, like during the 2020 season. Um, women, female athletes are absolutely crushing it in name, image, and likeness. They, they have you know, some of them have hundreds of thousands to millions of followers. So female athletes are incredibly marketable and women's sports viewership is also is, is also very impressive. It's not going to bring in, you know, SEC football money, but women, so many women's programs could be revenue generators if these athletic directors put in the same level or even a, a, a proportionate level of effort that they put into football and men's basketball. The problem is that there's a very old school way of thinking in most of these programs where a lot of athletic director, and this is something that I experienced as an athlete too, watching our athletic director put all of his time and energy into football and men's basketball um, and cutting other programs, thinking that that was the way to climb the ladder. Um, and, and it's it's only going to end up putting these universities in more debt. So. Um, these these universities they have to innovate or they're going to be left behind because the sports industry is evolving very quickly um and so people need to be ahead of the curve or they're going to fall behind oh yes uh the rise of women's sports uh i you, we don't know each other very we, we know each other very much better than we did an hour ago uh we don't know each other very well but you, so you won't know that i have been since many many years ago i have been like on look just do it out of greed. <laughs> Invest in women's sports because it's a huge it's a huge market opportunity. Um, 
it exi- the exi- I go to many examples on my uh, in my newsletter each week. Uh, you know, talking tickets. So if anybody Googles it, you can get it. Um, <laughs> I see I plug. Okay. <laughs> but I talk about the AFL women's. So the AFLW in Australia. Uh, and I had a chance to speak to the AFL's league day. And I talked about this thing. Like um, often what you find, and it, it, it goes back to that old school mentality you're talking about. Number one is that the old school mentality, we've always done it this way, is um, it, it's so toxic mm-hmm. that it's um, you can't get around it. But then number two, it just goes to like how – um, much room there is for just like it, it, you talked about. You just again, uh, you set the bar much higher than I would <laughs> for people if you just gave it a little bit of attention because right. there's so much opportunity, right? It's um, the AFLW case study is amazing because they they just did the proper job of marketing, which is like they did a little research, right? Like you know they did a decent segmentation of the market built on what would be meaningful and actionable to their customers. Mm-hmm. And then they positioned themselves effectively in the market, right? They picked the target and they positioned, and they've had tremendous growth, right? Um, to the fact, to the point that I believe it happened this year because it's coming too quickly. But by next year, they, I guess they, like maybe the term they use in Australia is professionalized it to the point where the women will be able to like, that will be their job. And that would be great. And it's all it, it's not like this a whole it was a whole lot of effort. I mean, they worked there. They worked very hard, but it, it wasn't like an insurmountable like this. This thing was like, you know, pushing um, rocks up hill mountains and stuff. No, it was like when they just did the basics well. And that's like when I look at most college athletics programs, that's what I see is that there's like this innovation thing is like that's even further down the road. It's like going innovation would be just getting the basics, right? Right. Well, and I think a, a big problem within athletic departments in the U S is that we have so many athletic directors who view women's sports as a burden rather than an opportunity. Like I've been told so many times, you know, that, okay, oh, you're only here because of title nine or, you know, your program takes money from the university. Um, and it doesn't have to be like that. You know, the NCAA, um, after the whole March Madness debacle last year with Sedona Prince um, TikToking about the resource discrepancies between the men and the women, um, the, NCAA, the NCAA began an outside investigation into gender equity. And the Kaplan report found, among many, many other things, that the NCAA's lack of promotion of the Women's March Madness tournament was shortchanging revenue in that area by roughly $80 million. And that, I mean, that's not, that's not, the almost a billion dollars that the men make, but that's significant revenue, you know, and that that kind of promotion and that kind of effort can be replicated at the university level. It just takes some creativity and some critical thinking and some willingness to do things in a different way. (laughs) Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're getting ahead of yourself there. Creativity and critical thinking. Hold on a second. Please. You're going to make my head spark. Hold on. Go. MK, you've gone crazy. I've lo- I, I opened the door and you like you've gone nuts. I, 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 I you. you. You give me an inch and I'll take a mile. <laughs> See, this is. I told you we would have fun at this thing. All right, so let, 
I think we could go about this all day long. And then it was like on, it would be like a cocktail hour where like the longer you have, the more drinks you have, like the like, crazier it gets. And that would be bad for everybody. Uh, in the fridge, so. <laughs> yeah, now we're talking. Uh, well, you're from you're from Kentucky, so you probably have something excellent too. So that's great. Uh, next time we're next time we're together in Texas, then that, that's when it'll be a party. Um, yep. Let's turn it around to the book though. Back to the book. And the book is called Surviving the Second Tier. Uh, and it is not a horror story, though it is. And it is not dystopian, even though it is. <laughs> but you can put blurb that on like the second edition. I love that. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. put it on the sleeve of the book. <laughs> exactly. We'll totally do that. I'll write up a nice uh, a nice, a nice blurb for you. Um, uh, as people read the book, I know because you, you talk so um, – you put it so well when you talked about like statistics, even though they should get people's attention, um, don't always cut through. And part of that is that, um, you know, what is that saying that goes, it's very hard to get a man to see something when his financial interests are involved that he doesn't want to see. Uh, I, I believe that's a little bit what goes on here. Um, what would you want people to think about as they're reading the book? Because you're, as an author, you wrote to convey a point, you know, same way, when I host a podcast or I do a newsletter, I'm trying to teach somebody something. What do you want people to take away from your book? That's such a great question. Um, one thing that I would really like for them to take away um, is that the life of a college athlete, it might look really glamorous on the outside. And the NCAA, you know, for all of its faults, is great at PR, is great at media work. Um, they package college sports in a way that is very entertaining, very exciting, and, and sports media do as well. And that's why you know, professional and collegiate sports are such a big business because they are fun. They are exciting. I'm a sports fan, you know, so I, I love watching sports. I love that kind of stuff. And I'm lucky enough to have the vantage point of somebody who has been through the NCAA to know that what is portrayed on television is not always entirely accurate. Um, There is a lot of struggle that goes into being a college athlete. Um, There are a lot of injuries, a lot of mental health issues, um, abuses of power at the coach level, at the university level, at the NCAA level, um, and just a lot of different um, tensions between teammates um, and, you know, uh, aspects of perfectionism, Um, and things like that, that people do not see. Um, And so I really wanted for people to think about and to just view college athletes and athletes in general in a different light after reading my book. I wanted them to see the human side of what is very glamorously portrayed on television. Yeah. Oh, I think that's great. And, um, you know, as you're talking about it, too, it's like it's not there's a struggle. There's mental health things. You know, that dehumanization thing that goes on. I have a friend who grew up, um, he's a, he was a professional basketball player. um, And um, he grew up not far from me. And uh, like, we're still, we're still buddies. (laughs) Like, we don't live that far away from each other. Um, And we talk, we talk about that too. Like, you know, it's like, there's always like somebody, you know, it's a struggle because you always feel like somebody wants something from you. Mm -hmm. You can't trust people's motivations. Um, it's a constant battle between, because you have a full-time job if you're a a competitive athlete in any shape or form. And yet trying to, a lot of these kids, again, come from these backgrounds where education is the only way out. Like, and the only way they get the education is through the athletics, Mm -hmm. you know, and you're trying to, trying to balance that. And then 
frankly, in too many athletic departments, maybe it's changed a little bit since I went to college in the mid 90s. You know, the kids are dismissed because they're just athletes. You know, that's the best they can do. And, you know, and it's wrong. I mean, because, you know, my buddy's a freaking smart guy. You know, he starts like, you know, he started a couple businesses. You know, he's raised kids that have gone to college and got their degrees and play uh, in the NBA now. I mean, you know, and I, his story is only because he's my friend that I am using him in context. But it's just like such a limiting and like, um, constrained environment. It sucks. Um, you know, it's not glamorous. And I think it, people are like, I guess for me, like the, when they think about the book and they look at it, like the takeaway is I want them to see that like one, they're real people behind this. Right. And it's just like, uh, that's sort of, um, I'm with you. I'm a sports fan and I love the stuff, you know, it's, but then at the same time, I, I don't want my enjoyment of the athletics to become at the expense of like somebody else's mental health, their well-being. Um, I don't want to exploit somebody or take advantage of them. Right. You know, they're, they're bringing such happiness and joy to so many people. Uh, they deserve respect and, you know, um, opportunities and just like all the great benefits that like they you know that their happiness has brought to others i mean they they deserve you know op- great stuff too i mean that's just the way i view it and it's you know it's kind of the lens i th- see through everything is like i look at the people first you know and so like if, if i had to take away from people as they read this i would like you know use the opportunity to read a novel as an opportunity to think about the humanity and the people and the stories behind like all of these things that we love so much. Yeah, and and the the novel was always designed to be a vehicle for these uncomfortable truths. I think that dystopias just have this very unique way of sticking with readers in a way, you mm-hmm. know, like you mentioned, it's not a dystopia, but it is. <laughs> uh, you know, because we they hit a little too close to home. And so mm-hmm. I wanted to present these uncomfortable facts in a way that was more engaging and more, I, I hate to use the word entertaining, but um, you know, just more palatable than those facts and those statistics. Um, and, and you brought up an, a, you know, a point about wanting to enjoy sports, but not at the expense of, of other people. And I think the most important lesson that I've learned as a graduate student who critically studies sports is that you can be very critical of something and also love it at the same time. And I would also argue that your being critical of something that you love just means that you love it more than you would something else that you're not critical of, you know, because if you're critical of something in a constructive way, that means that you value it enough to see its shortcomings and to want it to improve. And so that curiosity and that that critical thinking and even the anger that can come from that, those are all good things. And so I always encourage people to lean into that, you know, if they ever have questions about um, an industry or, or anything that they find problematic, just do the research and, and don't be afraid to think critically. Um, because for a while I was like, I don't think I want to study this because I'm going to ruin my love for college sports if I do. But I have found that I, I love college sports even more now because I see what college sports could be if we transform it. Um, and I love the idea of that image in the future. No, I think that's a uh, good message to close on. Uh, MK, I was at, and, but I guess I will add one thing, and I'll call you Katie since I won't use your uh, your your pen name now. Uh, if being critical about things you love, that's the whole point of this. Yeah, and it's yeah. like really the whole point of like everything I do. It's like going, I only give a sh- I, I only give a shit because I care so much, and I know how powerful this stuff is. Um, so MK, how can people find you on the internet? That's a great. Uh, 
Great question. Um, so I'm on Twitter and Instagram. You can find me. My handle is at Lever Fever. Um, it's just my last name, L-E-V-E-R-F-E-V-E-R, -E -E because I went to high school at the height of Bieber Fever, and that's when I started <laughs> social media. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Um, and the links to buy Surviving the Second Tier, they're on both of my social media platforms. You can also find it on Amazon. Just search Surviving the Second Tier, and Tier is spelled T-I-E-R, like a cake. I always like to, you know, because it could be different. So I always like to just make sure that we're on the same page. The English language is confusing sometimes, and this is. is one of those cases. <laughs> Oh, well, awesome. I mean, maybe maybe we can ha uh, I can have you back under more uh, fun circumstances like, um, you know, kids are given, you know, better health care or something like for their athletics, uh, you know, something like that. that and that would be awesome. So oh, uh, but this was great. So thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me, Dave. I really appreciate it. Let me know what you thought of my conversation with MK Lever. Send me an email. It is my name, Dave at DaveWakeman.com. You can send me uh, whether you liked it, where you thought it sucked, uh, how much you hate me, whatever. I don't care. Just send the email. I don't care. Vent. I don't mind. Check out my website, DaveWakeman.com. You'll find blogs, articles, um, all kinds of stuff. Uh, there's links to newsletter signups, all that great, great, great stuff. Um, Make sure you check out the Talking Tickets newsletter, talkingtickets.substack.com. That's where some of the best work goes on, some of the best thinking. Um, really, it is a tool that has come to mean a lot to people, but it means a lot to me because it helps me figure out exactly what I think on topics. Uh, but you can get it. It's um, really well received, talkingtickets.substack.com. You'll be the first to find out about all the upcoming uh, events and conferences and everything else I'll be doing over the next few months. Uh, speaking of which, uh, make sure you check out the Booking Protect team at the Ticket Ticketing Professionals Conference in Birmingham, England. And it is March 16th, 17th, and 18th at a new location, the NEC in Birmingham, which is a little bit outside near the airport. In they tell me it's going to be even more fun than normal, uh, more parties, more people, more fun. Um, Andrew and Carol throw a tremendous party. Uh, Simon will be doing a talk about uh, security after the terrorist attack at the arena in Manchester. Uh, the Booking Protect team will be there uh, rocking and rolling, throwing down. So make sure you check it out. There could be a special guest um, make sure that if you do need to talk to somebody, uh, I'm a resource for you, right? Uh, hit me up, daviddavewakeman.com. Don't feel like you got to get through all of this crap alone. I am here for you. Um, I want to thank you for listening. Uh, my throat is still jammed up from the COVID, uh, but I'm totally fine. Uh, you know, but just let me know you're doing all right. Send me a note. Oh, also, I should not forget to check out the link for the Podfront survey. That will help me out tremendously. All right, so do that up. Get that filled out for me. I'll love you to death for it. I love you anyway. Uh, thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. Take it easy. Bye.